I am, and that makes it all more an honor for me to be with those of you who through many dangerous toils and snares have already come. And this uh, amazing calling that we share in the ministry of the gospel. And uh, let me tell you my hope for this morning. Um, the last thing you need is just straight out lecture kind of stuff, of course. My instinct is what we all need is to continue to be pastored in the environment where we are called to live, work, and play right now. Um, and so my hope this morning is to kind of see the interplay between weariness and hope. I'm going to talk a lot about the importance of owning weariness in life and ministry and to see how uh, God in His incredible kindness uh, it's not so much that he sabotages weariness, he invades it with hope. And hope is uh, absolutely not a feeling. There's a huge difference between feeling hopeful and having hope. And uh, my, uh, my longing for us this morning is to see what that looks like in two principal portions of Scripture. So um, leading up to our break, I want us to share together the gift of just really seeing uh, how the Apostle Paul himself is such a friend to us in the ministry of the gospel. Uh, a genuine, no spin, no BS lover of Jesus who uh, has experienced, did experience um, anything and everything you and I, you and I would know in ministry along the continuum of rapture and rupture. And uh, in a very particular time in ministry for myself, I discovered him to be one of my best friends. Uh, from the standpoint, uh, Paul uh, began to show me how the, uh, the gift of weakness is going to be with us all the way into the new earth. Don't despise it. Come to understand it. And that through the glorious gift of our union with Jesus, we're, we're already participating in the first fruits of the new heaven and new earth. Now we're going to see what this looks like together, in particular through various parts in our first session of 2 Corinthians. Uh, truly one of the most brutal, honest, real, encouraging portions of God's Word. One, I am honored with all kinds of leaders to sit in from the standpoint of uh, honesty, perspective, uh, what it means to be those who are, uh, as Paul wrote in Romans, groaning inwardly in the pains of childbirth without an epidural in sight, and waiting eagerly. Uh, so that's a, that's, a, that's a beautiful tension. In fact, that might be perhaps one of the best images you can hold on to in terms of this opening session. What does it mean to groan inwardly and you don't dare reach for relief, but wait more eagerly than ever for the fullness of the kingdom that has come and is coming? So let me pray for us. I'll just offer just a few words about my station and season in life. And uh, it's not that 
uh, being old has anything to do that means I am a candidate for giving you wisdom because there are a lot of old fools running around. But um, I think time plus grace uh, offers the opportunity to really to be able to speak, uh, hopefully, words of encouragement. And uh, truly, it's an honor to be with you. So let me pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you so much for RYM. Thank you for, Lord, this particular gathering. We, um, we're thankful, Lord, that face to face touch, being in each other's presence, is a little bit easier this year than certainly last year. Um, Lord, we are grateful to be. Um, able to touch, to listen, to hear, to encourage each other. And I pray, Lord, that would continue to be the gospel culture that you create uh, all the way through uh, this conference. Lord, I, uh, as always, just make myself available to how you would uh, free me to uh, make a lot of the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are creator, sustainer, redeemer, restorer, consummator. Thank you that you lived a perfect life of obedience for us. You willingly, even gladly, took our death, absorbing and liquidating all judgment against us. You are ascended in session at the right hand of the Father, uh, making your enemies your footstool, leading us as a parade of grace, triumphed over by the gospel, taking us all the way into the new heaven and new earth. And, and thank you, Lord Jesus, for, for so, um, by your Spirit, so ordering the recording of your word that it's the only no-spin zone that we will know in life. Thank you for how... Beautiful, you did not edit out parts of the Bible that are so important to us. Uh, pray that even parts of that honesty would uh, be our comfort and solace today. Lord, these your Father, these your sons and daughters are in different seasons and context of ministry. You know that even better than they. You know those who almost decided not to come out of sheer uh, weariness and exhaustion. Lord, you know those who came, hopefully looking for the chance to go somewhere else than where they currently serve. You know, Lord, where the most difficult things in our lives right now have nothing to do with ministry, but everything to do with uh, Christ being formed in us and, and your commitment, Father, to show us more of the beauty of Jesus, not to shame us, but to allure us and to heal us. So, Lord, in all of these things, resting in your knowledge, um, both this hour and the next, Lord, just uh, uh, free us uh, to, to know you as the one Paul now uh, reveals you as, a father of compassion, a father of multiple mercies, and the God of all comfort. We thank you, Lord, this day and always, in Jesus' name, amen. So, yes. Oh, thank you. Would you rather have a stand, or do you... This is great. Is that right? Thank you, Joe. All right, yeah, this is helpful because I was not blessed with one of those bottom-end voices that just carries real far, so this will be good. I'll... 
I have some leftover for granddad duty this afternoon with my five-year-old Otto. He'll yeah, get to do that this afternoon, pick up Otto from preschool. So let's look at um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, maybe some of you have just recently finished teaching through this letter. Maybe some of you haven't cracked the covers on it in quite some time. I must use my bottle for the microphone there. Um, but it is, uh, oh my goodness, it is a bomb. It is a perspective giver. It is just such a gift to us. So uh, just very, very briefly, uh, if you read First and Second Corinthians, you... You get the you get the conclusion pretty soon that there were actually four letters Paul wrote. Uh, God, by His Spirit, determined that First and Second Corinthians of the four letters that Paul wrote, they would be the ones that would be inscripturated into God's Word, and uh, obviously chose wisely. I'm, I'm certainly thankful for First Corinthians, and you can think of so many classic passages there. But 2 Corinthians, I'm probably more thankful for just the ethos and the pathos of what it means to be those called to serve Jesus. And uh, as Paul writes 2 Corinthians, here's a few of the things he's dealing with. He's being slandered. Uh, the people that he loves deeply are beginning to second guess his authority and the integrity of his heart. Uh, he has already gone through an amazing array of sufferings that he catalogs for us in 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, if you're ever inclined to have cut up some confetti and have your own self-appointed pity party, do it after reading 2 Corinthians 11. You'll be a little encouraged that at least you haven't suffered everything Paul did. And I'll remind you briefly, if you, you know, looking back, in that chapter, 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about, uh, he talks about um, suffering harm by those outside the community of faith and those inside the community of faith. You know, some of your most difficult experiences in life and ministry will not be from pagans, but from believers. And, and by the way, this hour is not about to ramp up a good cynical spirit so we can just really have a wine fest together. Uh, but it is to say, listen, uh, the scriptures are clear. I mean, the, the, the Lord never tricked us into thinking that serving him uh, was always going to be easy. And, and, and as we'll see again this morning, it's one of the gifts of why we are together, why uh why environments like RYM and your own individual gospel posses are so important in every season of life. And I would suggest in this particular season of life and ministry. So Paul's experienced shipwreck. He's experienced uh, floating in an open sea. He's been bitten by scorpions. He has had a lot of physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, satanic attacks. And he didn't pull punches, and he didn't go to Pollyanna. He's just real honest about at times what it feels like in the journey into what he is absolutely convinced is not simply going to make us glad we did it, but going to create within our hearts finally the release to love our Father for writing his story the way he did. And for the privilege that we have to be characters in the story of God, even as we are carriers of the story of God. So as he writes, beginning in 2 Corinthians, 
we're going to see something he models for us. And I don't think he's trying to model anything. You know, some people that try to model something, you feel like, you know, pressure from them to perform. He's just giving us this gift. And that's what the gift looks like as we start in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 1. Paul identifies himself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth together with all the saints throughout Achaia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty normal introduction for Paul, but quickly now he shifts into saying, really our theology needs to become our doxology. That is, we don't just formulate words about God. Uh, sometimes it's in suffering. Sometimes it's exactly in the environment of, of serving in the local church or serving in some mission context that the theology is going to become essential and precious. Because notice what he does at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we could comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Now here's where he begins to get real honest. He's going to give us some words and images that are not theoretical, but are very personal. And some of you are going to connect, connect with these images, and I hope you will... Embrace the freedom and the calling because as you do, as you're able to say, this hurts so bad right now, just in being me or, or where I'm serving. It's going to be a sweetness of knowing the Father more intimately. Notice what he says. If we are distressed, and the assumption is that he's experienced distress, which we'll see in a moment. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance and the same of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because you know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. All right, now he just goes from kind of the 40,000 gospel level into some very important things for you and me. Look at verse uh, 8. We do not... We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Now, let's just camp out there for a minute. Um, how, how would you know, uh, put in your own words? What are some synonyms or ways you would describe what Paul basically summarized for us as a season of his life? We don't know how long it was. Was this months on end? Could have been. If you look at the chronology of his life, you go through the letters. We, we don't have to know days, weeks, months, or what part of how many years. But but when you hear that, just any of you, just just speak out. What what's in what's in Kurt? Why is that a gift to you and me to hear him? Be that vulnerable. Anyone? It's a safe place for, to invite to be vulnerable. 
it's a, it's a safe place. In fact, the very way he begins, we don't want you to be uninformed. See, a lot of times in uh, different seasons of ministry, the assumption is, you well, you're either with some people that basically give you the impression you were supposed to work all that out before you worked here. Or certainly you're going to be always 10 times healthier than the students we trust you with. I mean, there's just implicit messages sometimes in an environment of performance that the leaders are those who absolutely are beyond all their brokenness. A friend of mine that we hired uh, when we planted Christ Community Church in 1986, one of our first hires was a former youth pastor in another church in another state in another country you've never heard of, so you won't figure it out. His senior pastor literally said to him and his whole staff, we assume you made all your mistakes elsewhere before you started working here. Now, probably would not have said yes to that job had that post been put on his computer earlier. But really, I mean, you think. We assume if you work here, you've made all your mistakes elsewhere. And uh, he absolutely, you know, um, grew up in that pressure of, heck no, we're not going to inform you about what's hard. We're going to keep that stuff hidden in some ways, going to spiritualize it, gonna, or maybe silently blame other people. See, if you're not honest about what it feels like when you are distressed, overwhelmed, uh, you know it's too much. If you're not honest about that, you will do something with that reality. In fact, just for a few moments, just out loud here, I don't... Um, I'll repeat some of it, but I'm not so much concerned about the recording per se. But, okay, if we're not honest about when we feel overwhelmed, when we are despairing of life, when we feel like this is too much, if we're not honest, where might we take that stuff? What are some false strategies to deal with that crazy-making inside of us? We're in... We're in ministry and we're a mess. So you don't take it to Jesus or the good friends or certainly the people you work for. So where might you take it? Consumption of the name. Good. Keep, keep, keep going here. What else? You take that anger to other relationships where you feel like you can't express it. Yeah. Sometimes your spouse and kids get the benefit of your dishonesty. Your dog. <laughs> you know, you name it. I mean, you can... You, or one of the things I did early on, suddenly I just started medicating that pain, you know, one beer became three. Or, um, you know, running four miles turned into eight miles just because I really didn't want to stop running, not because I'm a runner. I wanted to run away. Maybe, maybe a truck will hit me. I mean, there's just different ways. If, if, you, if you're not able to honestly say, sometimes in serving Jesus among the people of God, this is what this is what becomes of me mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. It's an enormous gift here. We do not want you to be uninformed, says Paul. Great pressure beyond our ability to endure. We despaired of life. Now, the next part of verse 9 begins to show us a way not not so much to make sure that never happens again, but when in life and ministry you go through cycles of thinking, I would trade this whole ministry in for a Diet Coke if I had a chance. 
Um, Paul, at a meta level, gives us this, and this is a great this is a great perspective that I would say, at some point, if you haven't begun to see your pain or your difficulties, your current situation at the larger level, here's where you start. Notice what he says. But this happened. Now, again, he's looking back on a lot of different stories that we some are privy to through the book of Acts, some even later in this letter. He says, this whole morass, this whole overwhelming aspect of life and ministry happened to us that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, that's a meta level. That's good. You see, that's... Uh, one of the great things about the Bible when you begin to read it as this fourfold plot line of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, you know, you're, you're not as likely to get lost in one chapter in the story and, and not knowing where you really are. If, you, if you're uh, someone that's come to uh, greatly appreciate, you know, theology of resurrection, the significance of Jesus' resurrection, not only for your own personal resurrection in the future, not only for your spiritual resurrection and the past through your union with Christ, but the future resurrection and restoration consummation of the entire cosmos. So Paul has the larger story in play always. I so pray that increasingly we will be a people that will inhabit God's word in that way where we know um, here's what hope is. Hope holds me, I don't hold on to hope. And like I said, there is an enormous difference between feeling hopeful, which is a good thing, by the way. It's not an ultimate thing. And having hope. Uh, the older I've gotten, uh, the more I've appreciated uh, the men and women that have served Jesus in front of me, who, who basically the older they got, uh, it wasn't more cynical that uh, they became, it was more childlike. And a real sense of, of really uh, pondering the wonder of our coming life in the new heaven and new earth did not become a panacea, but became a basis of saying, here's why we stay present. Where I am one day will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Right now it's filled with a bunch of crap. But one day it would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord not because I need some way of kind of uh, stemming the tide, but no, this is the story. You know, when you read through the book of Revelation, what you encounter is the same thing in an 84-year-old or so John, as we find now Paul in a real crisis of life and emotionally, mental, spiritual exhaustion. You know, John is writing not from Club Med holding a pina colada or margarita. He's, he's under arrest. He's in a very uh, uncomfortable environment on the Isle of Patmos. But what he sees transforms him and brings him back to the larger perspective to benefit those he's called to serve in Asia Minor. See, we've already, already seen that in terms of the function of how the Lord, the Father, will meet you right now. It's because you matter, but also there's going to be something really profound about you being honest and real about what's hard, what's overwhelming, what's too much. And as the Father meets you there, the compassion and mercy you have to be present and to give that gift to others.
Um, the Christian life is not primarily getting over stuff. It's growing through all things. If, uh, if you think of gospel centrality or knowing Jesus, that the better you do, the less you'll hurt, I, I promise you it's the opposite. The better you know Jesus, the quicker your tears and the louder your laugh. Because you're going with him into his story. You're not doing anything for Jesus. And we share in his sufferings. Now, part of Jesus' sufferings are over. Hallelujah, right? What he did on the cross is once and for all. But he is the one who, even from heaven in some way, you know, still communicates to pagans like Saul of Tarsus why are you persecuting me? See, the, the identification of Jesus with where you are right now, what's hard, what's fun, what is encouraging, what is absolutely crazy-making, Jesus doesn't just know it. He's actually there. He's not watching from up there. Again, he's the only one that has his resurrection body, and he is living in us, and we're living in him. Again, this is just critical for Paul. We, says Paul, as we, as we ponder, think, pray, um, we know this. It's not this happened because of so-and-so. Right? He's not into blaming. This happened so that. See, so much of ministry, so much of your freedom in ministry is going to be the so thatness, not the because, so that we might not rely upon ourselves. We want to be sufficient, right? We want to be enough. Nobody in this room wants to be exposed as being incompetent in your realm of student ministry or any kind of ministry. Um, by nature, we are approval sucks. By grace, we'll die to more of that and we'll be more realistic about what it means to stay present with hope, owning at times the weariness that comes. As with Paul, he's going to give us another gift here in just a minute in terms of Y-R-Y-M, why we need togetherness, why we need community. Notice how he takes us into that in this next part of the letter. So Paul's looking back, but he's also looking present because it's just not the catalog of things that happened in the past, and now I'm wiser and I can tell you guys. No, as he writes, he is being Slandered. His weakness is leading so-called super apostles to say, don't trust this jack leg. He's been in prison. He's weak. He can't see. He writes with a big hand. He's, he's a schmuck. We're the ones that are not suffering. Trust us, said the super apostles. Paul's hurting now, even as he says this. Notice where he goes. All right, this happened, this catalog of things that really are overwhelming in ministry, that we might not rely upon ourselves, but upon the God who raises the dead. Now, verse 10, and this is where we come in with each other and a, a critical part of even your thinking now about the stewardship of your place and your ministry where you are. Verse 10, he, this, this father of compassion, the Greek is actually multiple mercies, plural for mercy, this father of multiple mercies, this God of all comfort, has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. And now look at verse 11. As 
You help us by your prayers. Oh, the beauty of interdependence. And, and we'll get a, get a taste of this later in the letter. You know, one of Paul's uh, sons in the faith was Titus. Yeah, the, the guy that wrote the book of Titus. He shows up in chapter 7. I, I love this image. Paul says, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by coming of Titus. Look, don't, don't just look to your spiritual moms and dads. Look to the middle school kid that's going to come into your office and simply love you to be an angel. I think it's going to be fun in eternity if we have this gift to know. So who were these angel unawares that, you know, the book of Hebrews wrote about? Well, it was that middle-aged kid that kept picking his nose in the middle of your teaching, and but actually this was someone who loved you and stayed present. And you have no clue, but they were a plant. Um, there's so many ways the Father is committed to show us that we must stay away from self-narration, isolation, and to guard our hearts against cynicism and the kinds of things that we will atrophy into if the gospel's not in play and if gospel community is not in play for us. I learned this the hard way. Some of you know some of my story that I had, I had a major ministry burnout at age 50 when everything was going great. It wasn't until later that we went from Camelot to Carlot, okay? I got stories of you stay present in any church and it's going to be fun and it's going to be opposite of fun, okay? Welcome to humanity. Welcome to the body of Christ. But um, as an introvert with extroverted gifts, I was not aware of how much of a um, alienated life I was living. Um, uh, I don't think this is just epidemic for men, but for men in particular, we are capable of living from our heads more from our hearts, even when that head is full of grace words. I mean, I did a better job at preaching a theology of grace in that about 11-year gospel renewal we lived through in downtown Franklin. I better did a better job of making the grace of God attractive and essential for people coming from every kind of background before I was through a burnout made aware of, Scotty, it's your turn to get on the pallet and let your friends take you to Jesus. Challenge was, I had tons of acquaintances. I mean, some of the most amazing acquaintances, just incredible array of a lot of people, but I was just so alone. And Paul's saying, I can't do that as you help us by your prayers. Um, I don't know what that looks like for you right now in ministry, where you would say, okay, number one, having people pray not just for me, but with me is important. Let's just even stop right there. If, if you don't hear anything else in this opening session, if, 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 there, if, if a discipline of yours, if a delight of yours is not literally having people promise you they are praying for you. I don't care if it's from Japan or across the street, but also praying with you. That was modeled for me so profoundly by my spiritual father of 21 years, Jack Miller, who was the seminary professor of mine at Westminster Seminary, who I met in 1975, and until the day he entered heaven, 21 years later, he constantly asked me to pray for him 
in that moment. And he did that because he needed it. Who's it, who is it that works for Paul Miller in the room here? Thank you. I mean, Paul learned that the real way, you know, <laughs> like father, like son. But Jack had this way of doing life where after his own cold-hearted season of ministry, professor in seminary at Westminster Church Plantry woke up to how cold his heart was. A, he, felt, uh, he felt a lot more right than kind. And the images he used, you know, I, I, I loved defending the gospel more than I loved the gospel. But a part of his hitting the wall, which of course informed and helped me later in my own journey was, he just started saying, pray for me. And it would look like this oftentimes. When, when Jack was either in, in my physical space or serving Jesus somewhere overseas when he just started World Harvest Mission and they're just kind of moving out, he would call me and would say something like this, Scotty, I want you to pray for me. I know I don't love Jesus as much as I want to and certainly not as much congruent with the beauty that is his. And if my inclination would be, yeah, Jack, I'll be praying about that, it would be, no, now, I want you to pray now. And, 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 and he... See, again, he knew what he was doing because he's training his sons and daughters, and, and I want this for you too. But he really, really meant that. Pray for me now. Who's praying for you now? Um, requires humility, doesn't it? Requires humility even to say, what do I want you to pray about? That the Lord will bless my ministry? Nothing wrong with that. But we we pray for me right now. I, I find a war in my heart. I'm thankful that I get to teach students about the gospel and, and really enter into their difficult world. But you know, right now, here's what I'm struggling with. I am really angry. And I'm not even sure where the anger is coming from. We you pray for me? Paul is doing this. He the Father has delivered, he will deliver. He will continue to deliver us from deadly peril. What an amazing phrase. As you help us by your prayers. I hope you are weak enough in your ministry to need others. I hope you'll have your students pray for you. Because you need it. Not because you just want to teach them this is what Christians do. They pray for each other. One of the things I remember back when I was uh, in because of Jack, I learned it from, but when I was uh, first came to town in 1979, uh, my wife and I are native Tar Heels. My wife's from Greensboro. I'm from a little town called Graham, about 20 miles from Chapel Hill, where I went to undergraduate school. But I was ordained at First Pres Winston-Salem in the uh, uh, Southern Presbyterian Church before PCA. I was called to be youth pastor at First Pres Nashville um, in 79 before in 81. Cortez Cooper at that time and myself were called to plant what became Christ Presbyterian Church in 81 and then they sent me out in 86 to plant Christ Community Church. But one of the first things I did as a youth pastor at uh, First Pres was um, to, to just to begin to find out in that church who loves to pray in the church and who will begin to meet with me on Thursday mornings along with my interns just to pray for our student ministry. Nothing, I believe, bore more fruit in what we did. None of the retreats, none of the conferences, 
it shocked me, but there were about six moms, and along with at that time, I started an intern ministry. I think we had about five interns. We would pray three hours on Thursday mornings. It would be a prayer walk. We would just, you know, I don't want that image to sound like, oh gosh, we were so holy or so disciplined. We were that desperate. And we'd start praying, and these moms would pray, and, and we would gather for three hours, and it wasn't three straight hours on our knees. We would say, all right, let's now walk around the neighborhood and, 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 and pray for students by name. So let's pray for ourselves. And, you know, we developed a culture of prayer, a culture of prayer that fathered us into when it became time for us to plant Christ Community Church. Uh, prayer is just an important part of how we live life. I, for the last 10 years, okay, put it like this, I, I, coming out of my burnout, uh, which age 50, in two weeks I'll be 72. My wife and I, Darlene, will have our 50th anniversary May 5. Thank you very much. So, uh, all that say, I'm giving a chronology. You're not saying you really are old, but um, um, coming out of burnout, beginning to get counseling and ministry and care, and really changing the rhythms of life, um, personal prayer became more important than ever. And and for the last ten years, uh, I have so enjoyed as an empty nester. And be careful here. I don't have your toddler waking you up or, or your baby keeping you up all night. But what I do now is, I mean, from I get up at four, and from four to seven, first part of my day is spent just marinating in the gospel. When you get older, you forget stuff. So, I mean, we're by nature have grace allergies, and are by nature are are, are gospel amnesiacs. But but you do forget stuff when you get older. And I need every day to swim in the grace of God. It, it fuels how I think about. Um, thanking God for what you guys are doing. Listen, I don't want to pity you. I mean, we could go off on the last two years and COVID have been crazy and, and you know, all the different shifts that are going on in your culture that weren't a part of when I was a student minister. It's always been difficult. But I know this, the more time I spend with Jesus, the more I am honored and committed to thank God for his servants. Your labors in the Lord are not in vain. I don't know where that's apparent to you right now. I don't know where it's so hard to do ministry for you. But hear, not so much me say, but hear the Father say to you, it's not in vain. There is no vain preaching of the gospel. One of the things of being a dinosaur is this. I bump into now, and living in the same city for 43 years, Franklin, Brentwood, Nashville, uh, I now have some of those kids that were the most obnoxious ones in my youth group. I remember one kid in particular. It was like he dared me to make the gospel relevant to him. He's now one of the most humble, faithful servants of Jesus. He's the dean of the med school at Vanderbilt. Anderson Spickard. It's just so fun to bump into this past weekend. Andy Gullihorn and I, who you had last night, is he not a stitch? You should meet his wife. She's three times better. But amazing songwriter. But uh, Andy and I were doing an event for a group of creative types out of Birmingham in a ministry called Inspero. And we were in uh, a thing together. And um, 
All right, I was going with that somewhere. Where was I going? Okay. All right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See, I'll humble myself. Yeah. Fading memory with ADD is very dangerous. <laughs> this gal, this uh, potter, came up to me. She was one of about 20 people invited to this event. And she said, of course you don't remember me, but you baptized me. And just talking about how hard it was to come to rest in Jesus, but knowing that I, uh, when she was completely dependent, had the honor of baptizing her. You know, more and more and more now, I see what some of you cannot see yet. It's not a waste. You're planting seed with a guaranteed harvest. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Jesus has secured a bride so grand, God chose the mathematics of mercy to a pagan moon worshiper, Abram, to say, count stars, sand, and dust. That's what we're talking about here, Abram. So love those students, but don't feel pressure as though you are the fourth member of the Trinity. The best thing you're ever going to do is just to see what Paul's doing here in this whole book. And I hope maybe moving forward, um, this might be a good year just for you to have a slow marinating walk through 2 Corinthians just for yourself. Don't turn it into a youth group study. Don't turn it into something you're going to write about. I would just say, if you're looking for a good travel log for this upcoming year, a slow walk through 2 Corinthians because, again, what you're going to see is what you've already seen here. Here's a brother. So let me pause for a moment. John, are you in the room? Or We, we break at 10.15, is that right? Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, good. You're Christian. You're here. Good. Okay, so I got you for legally for 18 more minutes. We'll take a break. <laughs> you know, what we're seeing here, even in the first chapter, and I had no pressure to think, okay, let's get through this, this, and this. Uh, what you're seeing in the first chapter is, again, a, a, a man who um, has no doubt about the love of Jesus, no doubt about where his own life is going. In 2 Corinthians 5, he even says, if this earthly tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. And he's basically saying, so if we die, we die. But here's the good news, we know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Appreciate the fact that Paul's not just giving a theology of heaven. He's saying, I could die. God, know this at least, okay. If these wild beasts, be they two-legged or four-legged, take me out, I am with the Lord, from which he goes right into second part of Second Corinthians, preaching the gospel to himself, declaring what? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Paul is always preaching the gospel to himself as he's wanting it to be the grand reality and the narrative and the culture of these he's working with. He, he's convinced of ultimate things so that in the midst of timely things, his heart keeps coming back to center, right? Okay, And that's a, that's a part of what I had to learn, have needed to learn in ministry. There is going to be cycles of rapture and rupture in various forms in what you do. There's going to be some stretches in student ministry where you're going to sneeze and three kids come to Christ. 
there's going to be some in which everybody trades your group in, your group in, your youth group in for the new church of the first buzz down the road with the bigger screen and louder music. And in all of it, Jesus is faithful. Picture here again, back to the text. Um, on him we have set our hope. Let's talk about that for a minute. See, Paul, in the midst of all these moving parts of slander, of criticism, outside, inside the people of God, um, he knows that um, depending upon the God of resurrection is a grand theological reality, but it's also as, it's as functional as saying in any given season of life, where have I hitched my hope wagon? And I might ask you that. And if you don't have the answer now, think about this coming out of this weekend. Well, number one, maybe, where did you stop hoping? Where is hope too risky for you? For some of you, it might be. For some of you, you see, this is a part of the sabotaging work of the devil. Sometimes the devil will work inside of your ministry and heart and life where you think it's too risky to hope because the last time I hoped, a group of parents tried to get me fired. Or the last time I hope. So number one, be aware of what does even the function of hope look like in your life right now. Can you no longer hope? Where did you lose heart or hope? Number two, right now, because uh, it's impossible to do life otherwise, where are you anchoring your hope? Are you hoping that maybe that new hire you made for middle school ministry? Are you hoping the new senior pastor's coming in? You finally got rid of that that person you hated working with, and so a new senior pastor, you know. Be careful where you set your hope. Because <clears throat> there's only one truly worthy of the risk of hope. And Paul's saying, on him we have set our hope. And, and truly in this beautiful environment of, uh, of staying vulnerable, of... Uh, of being those who uh, depend upon the network of friends, local and afar, of really seeking prayer and receiving prayer. And while you're still weak, giving yourself to other weary servants. Do you know that always one of the best things you're going to have to give to your friends in ministry that might be in some situations more difficult than yours is not your answers, but absolutely the kindness of your presence that can validate what they're going through. Isn't it a paradox? I mean, we, we teach it, do we not? We know later in the letter, Paul's going to be all over it. 2 Corinthians 12. Okay, in essence, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, I'm being criticized for being weak. You know what? I boast in my weakness because when I'm weak, Christ's strength rests upon me. Who, who would be that free as to say, I don't want to get over this weakness. I want to be impressive. But you see, this is what the gospel does. Our, our Savior willingly, consciously became weak. And in some profound mystical way, we still share in his weaknesses, we share in his suffering. Again, it's, this is not Jesus gentle, meek and mild, you know, uh, unwilling to confront. Oh, my goodness gracious. There's nothing more bold than the humility of Jesus. There's nothing more transforming than the kindness of Jesus. And it's why he calls you and me to call down grace when we'd rather call down fire. 
Now, after our break, we're going to look at what this looks like. I'm, I should go ahead and tell you this. We're going to look at Luke 10 as kind of a, 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 a path and a track for ministry moving forward. We'll see these things in a practical way as Jesus specifically teaches the 72 as they prepare to go out. So that's going to be after our break. But the picture here that, that continues in the letter, uh, just thumb over quickly on my remaining few moments about, um, yeah, got 12 more minutes for the break here. I got 15. Okay, excellent. A few more images I just want to connect for you just to make sure you see, oh yeah, that chapter I've always loved in 2 Corinthians, but it's a part of this whole flow. You know, in 2 Corinthians 3, you don't need to read the whole thing now, but Paul says, okay, here's who we are in the midst of life and the difficulties of ministry. We're so glad not to be Moses. Because Moses, when he would come down from communing with God, covered his face because the glory was fading. Paul says, that's not us. No, we now, with unveiled faces, see the beauty of Jesus. And we're transformed by meditating, pondering, reflecting upon the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of Jesus. Let me camp out there for a minute. 2 Corinthians 3, going into 2 Corinthians 4. Three aspects of Jesus I would love for you to become more familiar with. A lot of us in the Reformed world are more familiar with and committed to the truth of Jesus. That is not a bad thing. Please hear me say I'm not about to diss that. Jesus is the truth. But you see... As you look at the imagery of Scripture, as you look at Jesus' self-revelation, he is truth, but he's also quintessential goodness. When you read in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good, you should be thinking, I, I know that in Jesus. Now, in, in ministry and in life, sometimes out of weariness and tiredness, you end up more doing a truth battle when your heart is no longer tasting the goodness. And I would just invite you to know moving forward in this upcoming year, um, do not go long without feasting upon the goodness of Jesus. Do, do, not, do not allow yourself to pride yourself in the rhythm and consistency of your quiet times. If it's so quiet, there's nothing about Jesus that really is good to your soul. But then thirdly in that, and I think this is Paul's image about unveiled faces, he says, as we, we're transformed as we meditate, as we contemplate upon the Lord. When I use the phrase, the beauty of Jesus, where does that take your heart? I mean, where, where, where in your theology, understanding of the gospel, would you say, I am learning more about the beauty of God. I'm learning more about that this craving inside of me for beauty that it is ultimately answered in the person of Jesus himself. And what I've observed is in ministry, people that I've walked with for a bunch of years is it's, it's kind of you lose one and then you lose the second, then you lose the third. If Jesus is no longer beautiful before long, it's not that he's really good in the sense of satisfying my heart. And then I begin to call in the question of his truth. You see, if, 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 if we're not living a lifestyle that would say, I'm going to be 
not busier this year, but more intentional about what aspects of serving Jesus are going to be critical. You know, please make that commitment because let me tell you, out of the currency of your, not just your union with Christ, but your communion with Christ, that's what constantly is going to bring us back to out-loving, out-enduring, whatever opposition the enemy throws at us, whatever opposition you feel in the church where you're serving right now. It didn't make you better then, right? No, what does this life of, again, Paul following, here's, we're, we're, we're given this gift, transformed by contemplating the beauty of Jesus, the glory's not going away, uh, Christ in us, the hope of glory, our lives are hidden with Christ and God, we know him, we see him, we love him, we keep coming back collectively, we make worship culture even central to what we do in our student ministry because we want our kids' hearts to be engaged, but I want my heart to be engaged. That leads into perhaps finally leading up to our break. This passage that again you're familiar with in chapter four. The image of treasure in a clay pot. Um, you've taught that. You've heard good sermons on that. Maybe some good songs are on your or in your recorder that you love that portray that image. But 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 again, let's just think of what Paul's how that flows out of the very first introductory part of his vulnerability and honesty about how hard it can be, but how good Jesus is. You know, to use this image, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, and 2 Corinthians 4 is so beautiful, so honest, you know, outwardly we're distressed, we're wasting away, and yet inwardly, here's what's going on. In fact, here's who we are. We are those who have a treasure in jars of clay. The image there is, um, you know, if you were a part of the majority poor culture that received God's word um, and the work of Jesus, then if, if you had something like healing, healing uh, aromatic oils or even perfume, uh, you didn't have a fancy French cut glass cork top that you simply stick in and pull out and pour out a little bit on your wrist. Um, the container of choice or what would be considered a precious oil or something that would be preserved was just a, a cheap clay pot that didn't have a top. In fact, you accessed it by breaking it and allowing the aroma of what's there to be released. And so what Paul does for us, does he not, is to say this, always focus on the treasure because the more you do, the more you will accept the weakness of the container and you're not going to despise the fact that you don't have all the answers. You're going to get over trying to make every parent, every pastor happy. You're going to live with a vulnerability, a transparency, an honesty that will make your gospel friends more important than ever. And you will be an encourager. You will look for the ones wearier than you. Just to be with, just to love, just to care for. A glorious image Paul gives us. Well, there's so much more in this letter. Well, uh, good. I'm glad we're not completely done yet. Got five more legal minutes. Again, I, I just love the flow of the letter because you see, if, if you go, unless uh, you'd be under the assumption, it's like he's climbing the Mount Everest of the gospel. It gets sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. No, it's actually in chapter 
fin where the stuff hits the fan again. Now we're not going to go through a lot, but in, in chapters 10 and 11, Paul kind of gives us uh, an emotional look at what did it mean to live in a world of cynicism and criticism. And I'm glad that the letter's even constructed in that way so that you won't be under some impression that life is one giant, growing, spiritual renewal fest. No, you, you are filling, you are understanding the rhythms of what it means to live with more dependence and more weakness in company with brothers and sisters that are your community. Because there are times like chapters 10 and 11 in 2 Corinthians. Again, won't camp out there long, but he, uh, Paul kind of gives us a glimpse into what does it mean like at times where you bump up right against wanting to defend yourself, but in the gospel, which you're most committed to defend is the integrity of the gospel, not the worthiness of the vessel. And that is a very hard place to live. But you see, the beauty of it is you know, when, 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 you, when you can count on the fact that opposition is going to follow us and precede us all the way into the new earth, then there are perspectives we can cultivate. And a part of that dynamic is going to be when it's really hard, are you aware inside of you when you're getting so close to excuse making and defensiveness? Be self-aware enough and don't let yourself linger there. But allow yourself to know, as for Paul, what, what you see in Paul more and more and more is this. Look, here's the deal. If I die, I'm with the Lord. But here's what matters. If the gospel is not in play, a lot of people die in a lot of different ways. And these false apostles that were really troubling him, they were preaching a different Christ, not the same Christ. And so his commitment to gospel-centeredness in all things was not, don't listen to the liars misrepresenting me. Don't listen to the liars who are misrepresenting Jesus. And so you see the passion and the integrity of what it means for us increasingly in every season of ministry. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I'm closer to heaven than most of you, but I'm not going to presume upon that. My mom went to heaven right after she turned 38. Don't, don't, Count on the fact that you know you might make it to your 72nd birthday. Live now with a genuine sense of the stewardship of this day, this year. Love Jesus and prepare the students you're walking with as though Jesus might not come back for a thousand years. But increasingly allow yourself the luxury of knowing the gospel is true, good, and beautiful. Do not allow yourself to dismiss any of these. Letter finishes. Paul, in chapter 12, of course, just that quintessential bringing together of what we've already referenced. There's a, you know, he, he gives us this gift of, uh, here's what a man, knowing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, here's at times what, what um, some of the things that don't make sense, how they're gonna end up becoming the most important gifts. His thorn in the flesh, what was with that? We don't know for sure, but um, Richard Gaffin, who I studied with at Westminster, who taught New Testament, one of my favorite teachers in the history of classroom experiences, he said, 
you know, if you go through the letters of Paul, what you soon realize is that there is some pattern that would seem to say his thorn in the flesh was ophthalmological. He writes in Galatians, when I came into your midst, you know, you would have given me your eyes. Uh, and more than one, and I think in that very letter, he says, do you see what large letters I write with? He usually had an amanuensis. So some, he came from a part of the world called Cilicia, where malaria is well known. What if Paul's unbelievably difficult, encumbering reality was nothing more, more, nothing more than bad eyesight? And it made all the sense in the world that he would pray and be removed. Don't you love that gift? I prayed three times earnestly that this would go away. Why? Because I could travel more freely. I could do so much more for Jesus. But then he shows us, you know what? The very thing I cursed. And I don't know what that would look like for you. Where you're weak. Some difficult experience of some, some reversal in health. Some, some situation. But, you know, what will the Lord use to bring you and me? Not, not beat us down, but free us to say, when I am weak, I'm strong. You know, do you know the name? And I am actually closing the Bible. Let you know we are going to take a break. Do you know the name... Uh, Amy Carmichael. Remember where she served? Wealthy family in England, grew up in a family of nobility, had an incredible life if she simply wanted to exploit that. Uh, uh, it, it was in China or India where Amy Carmichael went? India. Did you, did you say India? I think it was India. Okay. Yeah, I think it was. All right. Here's her story, and we'll conclude with this. Amazing woman captured by the beauty of Jesus. I mean, the beauty of Jesus. You read this woman's literature and realize she believed the gospel is true, but she believed Jesus was good and beautiful. She gets, she gets to India. Early after settling in, she breaks her back. And for three years, her first three years of ministry, are on her back, having to let those she came to serve serve her. And the story was, I would have not changed my story for anything because I needed the gospel more than ever. And it became more beautiful and believable to those who only knew a world of 300 million gods, but they came to know who truly was the Lord. Let me just pray for us as we close. And we're going to take a break, and then we're going to stay in the same kind of a pathos, ethos of the interplay of hope and weariness and weakness as we look at Luke 10 when we come back. But let me pray. Let me just take a moment. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving me the gift this morning of just looking into the eyes of these, your sons and daughters. And Father, it's not unlikely that some of them are beginning this year with incredible fresh encouragement just some students are, are really connecting deeply with the gospel. Um, uh, it's a season of even health within a local church that's beginning to repent of performance and really seeing how COVID actually worked to build a, a, a unique dependence upon the God of resurrection that perhaps was not known before COVID. But Lord, others of us, perhaps half or more, uh, aren't in necessarily in places of fresh encouragement. But we are, Lord, through your word, in a place 
of eternal encouragement. Even, Lord, in this brief interacting with our brother, our friend, your servant, Paul. Father, you know, again, leading up to and after my burnout, how, how critical this understanding of weakness and hope, how it has, Lord, continued to serve me well in these 22 years since that time I could not finish a sentence. I thank you that you are the God of resurrection. I thank you, Father, that even the most severe mercy we experience is your way of saying, this is that I might capture your heart afresh. Your jealousy, as Kuiper said, is our greatest compliment, that you would be jealous for our love. That you, Lord Jesus, are the one who sings to us, even today, even in the midst of what we're most ashamed of about ourselves, or most angry about and where we serve. You say this to us, come away, my beloved, my desire is for you, my banner over you is love. And you individually, collectively, Lord Jesus, thank you that you're not in a hurry. You're not second guessing. You're not pacing the quarters of heaven wondering when we're going to get it. You love us with an everlasting love. And we do pray, Lord, that this will be a year for many of us to be restored to our first love and taken to places of kindness and gentleness and hope, Lord that truly will give you great praise as we live out of our weakness and brokenness and your ongoing commitment, Father, to make us like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.